Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And wait, who is this? Hello, it is I. Mike, do you want to tell me your name? Oh yeah, I'm Mike Mason. I, uh, yeah, do so. Yes, we are fortunate to have Mike Mason with us once again, uh, line editor of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Welcome, Mike. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. And today's topic, we are discussing the appeal of investigative games. But before we get into all that, what is going on? I ask myself that same question every bloody morning and I still haven't got a decent answer. Well, Matt doesn't have the answer to the meaning of life, the universe and everything. Uh, Scott, I understand you've had some issues with the emails that we've been receiving from people. Yeah, after telling people over and over again that they can contact us via the contact form on blasphemoustomes.com, it turns out a little while back I changed it so that it delivers the messages to my Gmail address. What I didn't realise was, by default, Google was filing it in a folder that I never actually look in. They've all got it in for you, Scott. Yeah, it does seem like that. Sorry if, if I did ignore you for a month or so. On a more positive note, uh, you're gearing up to run a big campaign, aren't you, man? Two. Two. Yeah, two campaigns. One one week, then doing another one the next week and alternating back and forth between them. Yeah, uh, my original group that we were planning on doing Beyond the Mountains of Madness with fell through. But it looks like we've got another group of uh, intrepid investigators or heroes that want to go down to the South Pole and start kicking some polar bears around. So, so. are you running this with pulp? Uh, yes, I will be. Ah, yeah. exciting stuff. Yeah, so mm. I thought, um, way to make stock-taking a bit more interesting, pulpify it up a bit. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, you, you still have to do all the stock-taking. You just do it in the middle of a, a fierce gunfight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Something I'm envisioned to shoot them up now. <laughs> and, and a glutton for punishment, you're running that, but you're not just running that. You're alternating weeks with another campaign. Yeah, we're, doing, uh, we're also getting together a full-length playtest of Poison Tree as well with a different group. Okay. So r- running through from start to finish, hopefully in one go. So you're running the entirety of, of a poison tree on a fortnightly basis. Yeah, I, we, we might be finished by 2020. I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll have finished right now and it'll all be published before you finish, Matt. <laughs> I really hope so. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I know, with, the, with the group I've got at the minute, they can, uh, they can definitely procrastinate, but also find some very bizarre ways to solve problems. Why don't you run a poison tree with the pulp system as well? <laughs> Get a death ray... You'll be sorted. Oh, I got, when I tried it with the other group, I had they had a lightning gun by about session three or four. So. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Then you have a regular section before you get into it. We do. We do. What's that it? called? I can't oh. remember. I, what I, was I think it's, it's, got? it's. I think it's. Is it the Lovecraftian word of the, the week? No, that can't be right. <laughs> We're not weekly. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. What is it this week, Matt? It is cryptic. An adjective. One, having hidden meaning, mystifying. Two, secret or occult. Three, using code or cipher. And yeah, this is a word that the Lovecraft used quite a lot. I mean, he used a couple of variations of it. He used cryptic a fair bit, and then cryptical. 
Which means pretty much the same thing. Yeah, it's not really a word I associate with Lovecraft somehow. I think of it more like Cold War espionage and things like that. Yeah, but like I say, I mean, it's, it's quite a common one for him. And, and I think I tend to associate it with Lovecraft primarily because of that book that turns up in The Other Gods and is it The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath as well. Seven books, so. in fact. Yes, the seven cryptical books of Hassan. And I think, again, this is another word that indicates a, a key aspect of, of Lovecraft's work, which is this idea of, of hidden mysteries, of hidden meanings behind things. And, yeah, I mean, there, there is an awful lot of that in Lovecraft. Is, is, is cryptic a word that uh, appears in, a lot in your vocabulary, Mike? Hmm. Once in a while, do, but do, not, do, not regularly. Do I you do cryptic think. crosswords? I don't. I have a disdain for cryptic crosswords. Oh, I do too! Yeah, my sister says, oh, we've been doing the Christmas crossword in the Radio Times. Like, oh, that sounds exciting. And she, Hold on. Is it one of those cryptic ones? She's like, oh, yeah. I quite like no, them. No. Yeah, yeah. No. Well, my brain doesn't work like that, I'm no. afraid. <laughs> Just whenever I watch Countdown and have the uh, cryptic conundrum. Going back to the cryptic crossword thing, it, it seems very much something that is for... You know, you have to be kind of versed in how to do it. But but the which, techniques, the techniques for uh, how to do it are fairly simple ones. There are simple formulae that turn up disguised in different ways. So, you know, the, the crossword setter will find different ways of letting you know that this is an anagram or that, you know, a bit of one word goes in front of another. Part of the art of it is is working out what you're being told to do and then and then, you know, doing it in a methodical manner. Yeah, that's does, what you want to say. Yeah, I think it's about yeah showing off more than anything. <laughs> does it involve book learning? <laughs> yeah, book learning, um, reading. Hey, not really, actually, no. No, it's, 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 it's supporters. It's, it's, if you understand how the to process... Do it, then you can do it. You can do it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there's no challenge, is there? Because you just actually, you know, yeah. it's not actually... Fundamentally, tense. I don't like it. That's yeah, I, I, I don't think it should be. I think it should be. <laughs> yeah. I do remember... That's, that's not have them anymore. I do remember a couple of uh, puzzles that were in the, the 11th hour, the old computer game, one of the very few times I've played computer games. And this bloody puzzle stuck in my head for, for ages, and I had to look up the answer to it in the end because I couldn't think, well, how the was, hell did you get this? Was, was it cryptic, Matt? It was very cryptic. Rolling rock bottle cap. Go on, Scott. Um, rolling rock. So Let me start I, the 30-second countdown. So does that mean rolling, you know, the rolling being applied to rock, does that mean rock and bottle is going to be some kind of anagram of the two of those indicating a word that might mean cap? Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Um, yeah, I am, time I am, up, sorry. I am, <laughs> I am shit at doing anagrams in my head. If I had a bit of paper, I could probably work it out in a few oh, moments. An- anagram of rock, cork. Oh, okay, there yeah. we go, yeah. I could not get that for the life of me. <laughs> just that immediate... I just didn't understand what the yeah. hell that puzzle meant. No, that, that is a classic cryptic crossword clue. Yeah. I've I, I got better things to do in my time, Paul, have you? Well, I haven't, but I'm not going to use my <laughs> yeah, wasted time doing that. Uh, anyway. I, I, actually, I'm kind of surprised you don't like cryptic crosswords with your, your oh, love yeah, of English puzzles. passion for puzzles we, and so on, Matt. We, yeah, I mean, my brain just freezes. Excellent. So <laughs> next time I put in an in-game puzzle into a game, I'll do it in the form of a cryptic crossword, and I'll use it as a version therapy. Right, Scott. <laughs> for the next Blasphemous Tome, issue three, I want a cryptic crossword from you of eldritch words. Okay, challenge accepted. There, you heard it here, listeners. <sighs> but in the meantime, let's take a look how H.P. Lovecraft used the word cryptic in his writings. From the doom that came to Sarnath, and up unending steps of shining zircon, was the tower chamber 
wherefrom the high priests looked out over the city and the plains and the lake by day, and at the cryptic moon and significant stars and planets and their reflections in the lake by night. And from cool air. It seems that he did not scorn the incantations of the medievalists, since he believed these cryptic formulae to contain rare psychological stimuli which might conceivably have singular effects on the substance of a nervous system from which organic pulsations had fled. And from the dream quest of unknown Kadath. Some of them stole off to those cryptical realms, which are known only to cats, and which villagers say are on the moon's dark side, whither the cats leap from tall housetops. But one small black kitten crept upstairs and sprang in Carter's lap to purr and play, and curled up near his feet when he lay down at last on the little couch whose pillows were stuffed with fragrant drowsy herbs. From the thing on the doorstep. The three servants were very queer, an incredibly aged couple who had been with old Ephraim and referred occasionally to him and Athena's dead mother in a cryptic way, and a swarthy young wench who had marked anomalies of feature and seemed to exude a perpetual odour of fish. And now we go to the main topic, which is the appeal of investigative games. And considering that we are primarily a Call of Cthulhu podcast, it's kind of odd that we've got to over 100 episodes before we've actually tackled this topic. Because I really, to me, maybe other people might have different opinions, but Call of Cthulhu is, at least to me, the definitive investigative game. I, we were having this discussion earlier, though. It's probably not the first one that contained investigative elements. Was it you, Mike, who pointed out Top Secret? Yeah, Top Secret, released in 1980 by TSR, is a, a game of espionage. And so by dint of that, I guess, you know, investigation plays a you know, significant part of the game, as well as it being a kind of an action spy kind of thing. But there is an element of investigation in there. But I think Call of Cthulhu was probably the first one that really made its focus investigation. So what do we mean by an investigative game what what constitutes an investigative game as opposed to any other kind of game because i think that's that is a key question because i've played numerous games that feature investigation you know you try and find something out that's investigation right yeah and i think it's one of these things like when we had our discussion about horror and the appeal of horror we talked about the fact that horror was almost like a seasoning that could be sprinkled on all sorts of other genres and investigation i think is an element that can be brought into a lot of other things and certainly in the case of call of cthulhu you know it is being applied to a an a horror game is it integral to lovecraft's work investigation I think it is in a lot of his stories, because his stories are, particularly his later ones, are about people digging around, uncovering lost secrets and perhaps unwanted revelations. It certainly and, seems like yeah. it in The Call of Cthulhu, the story Call of Cthulhu. Yes, yeah, so I mean, I think that been predominantly based around an investigation, because you have a, you know, it even tells you in the story, it's the, uh, mm. you know, the accumulation of uncorrelated un- 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 facts together. But, but if we look to an alternative story like the Dunwich Horror... Is that so much investigation? I don't think so. No, I think there's an element in there from Armitage, but 
is not is not written in an investigative style. But if we want to go to another classic, how about The Shadow Out of Time? I mean, this is someone trying to investigate what happened to him and what the consequences are and what the truth is about this weird experience that he's undergone. I mean, that is a very active investigation. Or something like The Nameless City, where you have the archaeologist that's potting around the ruins looking for evidence of what the place was, what's left there, etc., etc. And there's also the, the term investigation, um, because by dint, we kind of all jumped to what we would term as almost like an official investigation to some mm. degree. And actually, it, it does occur in a lot of Lovecraft, but a lot of them are what you might want to term small or private investigations that actually that follow a search for knowledge or solo, follow a search for, cer- for a certain truth or s- uncovering a secret. Whilst, you know, they're investigations as well, it's very easy to kind of get hung up on, you know, is it a procedural investigation? Well, they're, they're not. They're you know, fumbling around to, to find information. Yeah. It isn't necessarily uh, that, that it's an officially sanctioned investigation, but I think one of the things, at least for me, that defines an investigative story like that, or particularly an investigative game, is the fact that the protagonists in it are actively investigating. They're actively trying to uncover clues. These aren't things that they're stumbling across. These aren't things that they're reacting to. They're not things that they're randomly encountering. They are actively going out trying to reveal the truth behind something. You mentioned the fundamental word there, clues. So in an investigative game, you're trying to discover and uncover clues that lead you on through well, the I, game, right? Yeah, I think that's the mechanic. I think what you're trying to do in an investigation game is uncover a certain thing, which could be a secret, a truth, or an object or person. It's something, effectively, something is missing, and you're now trying to find that missing thing, whether it be information or a physical thing. And the clues are the element are almost like the the main secret broken into bread are broken into breadcrumbs effectively that you are following a trail to a result of some kind yeah but not necessarily the result you set out oh no no no, 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 no. you may not know what you are seeking you are seeking you're you may start off seeking a certain thing but you are seeking something what you find may be something entirely different because there's the whole concept of a macguffin a macguffin could be something that seems really important at the outset but is actually inconsequential the important part isn't necessarily you know finding the multi-shoggoth or whatever it's it's um you know the the encounters that you get on the way there and the tangential revelations and perhaps it you know leads you to some big revelation at the end that is far more important than just finding this artifact you know, I've got a, a replica of the Maltese Falcon statue on my desk at home. I want the Maltese Shoggoth now. <laughs> and that, that would be a wonderfully sanity-blasting uh, effigy to Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like the Maltese Falcon, but instead of gold inside, it's a living Shoggoth. <laughs> and you just don't want to crack that case. Yeah, don't <laughs> drop that, Matt. <laughs> so I was thinking about this, what makes an investigation. Hmm. And, and thinking of just one scenario for a you know, classic uh, scenario, somebody's been kidnapped... But if I say, oh, somebody's been kidnapped, it's Count Bob, and he lives at the, in the castle over there, the old man tells you, can you go and get her? Is that an investigation? Not really, no, it's an no. adventure. You go and, you go and it's rescue. rescue. It's a rescue. You go, and, you go and capture them. But the other premise is that you go to visit the person, they say, oh, you know, the princess or whoever has been, has been kidnapped, we don't know who did it or where, where she's gone, please find out. It's kind of the, pretty much the same scenario, but one's an investigation... One's an adventure. And one's yeah, a- I mean, the other term you could call is one's a mystery. 
A mystery. Yes. Okay. I mean, does a mystery necessitate investigation? I, I would think, say it I think, does. I think it does. I think yeah. the very core of the, the very core of it being an investigation is a discovery of some kind. So. If the if there needs to be discovery, there must be some sort of mystery. Some oh, otherwise, you know about it. Some kind of well, unknown factor, perhaps. I, I think there could be edge cases there where you have you know something mysterious that's going on, but either the players don't engage with it fully, or where it's perhaps not something that is even knowable or discoverable. In which case, you're, you're using that as a pretext for something you know a bit more surreal, like an over the edge game. The purpose of it isn't to uncover the mystery. The purpose of the mystery is the there to accentuate and build weirdness. You know, having had that premise laid out now, I've got an idea of doing something a bit more subvertive. Having a group that are presented with, oh, you know, old man Bob from the castle's just been uh, just been kidnapped. You've got to go find him. No, I'm going to go raid his castle because now there's no one at home and there's all that wealthy <laughs> stuff, all that expensive stuff up there. That, that sounds like <laughs> almost every D and D game I've ever played. <laughs> and in terms of, I guess, in terms of you know, role playing games. Um, I think one of the differences with an investigation is that it tends to be, in very simple terms, player-led. You're not reacting to a set of circumstances given to you by the keeper or the GM. You are actually instigating the circumstances because you are actually proactively seeking certain things, which then may draw you into certain events and circumstances. But you're not simply sitting in your house waiting for things to come through the door to react to. You're actually proactively going out. So I think that's an important kind of definition around investigation. That it- but even then, I, you could equally, uh, say, be talking about uh, an exploratory game, like a dungeon crawl or something there, that is actively going out, that's actively trying to uncover things, you know, seeking out all the hidden mysteries of this dungeon and, and getting to the heart and defeating whatever evil is there. Does that make it a form of investigation See, I, I, I tend to disagree. I think you, you, could, you could overlay that on top of the dungeon crawl. But I don't think the players or their characters are investigating. I think they are adventuring in the dungeon and exploring. It's exploration of which parts they uncover certain information. But I don't think they're investigating it. I think they're exploring it. And I think that's, I think it's subtle differences. But but I think it's a very different, I don't recall anyone ever playing D&D I've played with who's talking about we're investigating this dungeon tonight. Oh, yeah, don't, don't get me wrong. You know? I, I agree with you. Mm. It's just I, it's, it's something that I'm sort of struggling with the demarcation of in my head, which is where does investigation end and exploration begin? Oh, absolutely. But, I mean, it's, again, it's very like horror, which is what you said at the beginning. It's a, a broad term that often it's, it is a continuum of scale and actually it very quickly bleeds into different things. Um, and so I don't think you can pigeonhole it in, in its entirety. I think it is a natural, it naturally begins and starts to bleed in, into, into other areas that you would find, well, it's, it's actually exploration now, or it's an adventure, or it's whatever it may be, you know. Well, I think the whole exploration thing that was recalled from the early days of D&D soon got lost and had investigation bolted onto it so all those D&D scenarios you know a lot of those sort of bolted on kind of investigation so I can remember playing D&D and suddenly we were like investigating around the town and we didn't even know where the dungeon was and we were sort of certain I was like we're three weeks in I don't even know where the dungeon is can we just kind of get on with it no, I bet there's I not even like, a dragon in there yeah I feel like I'm playing Call of Cthulhu not D&D here it's like 
exploration i think you're you're going from room to room or location to location and you're discovering things but you're not stringing together a series of clues and slowly finding stuff out you're gather you're killing monsters you're gathering treasure you're getting magic items the core of it isn't to follow a, a plot line towards solving a, a mystery well actually that's that's something that we should probably come back to later in the episode which hadn't occurred to me which is is a series of clues the same as a plot because i mean to me they're very different things the clues are things that you encounter that create the plot and the process of, of finding those and what they build towards is the plot. But the clues themselves aren't. They're sort of milestones. I want to see it the reverse, that to some extent the plot, for me, is the background context to the scenario, what's led to play kicking off at this particular moment in time. And that clues are almost a an effect or like a residue or a creation of plot. So it's, just say, the other way around for me. A role-playing scenario is like a tapestry. There are many layers to it. And what you're doing is looking at a specific layer. And any and, and you can apply many other layers to it and, it. and it changes the tune and tone and atmosphere of the game. So a D&D game of exploration in a dungeon, yes, you could throw a mystery in there. And part of the exploration becomes an investigation to solve where is the princess that should have been in this room? We've got to go and find her because there are some clues here of where she's gone. That's mm. certainly an investigation. And so I think it, it, it almost becomes null and void to the point because you can only take this conversation so far before you it becomes reductive. And, um, and as I say, I think you know clues and investigation are threads in the tapestry and sometimes they work very closely together and sometimes they're not so close together because so that's like a, an element in in the story could be investigation yes but there are quite a few people that desire that to a great degree and they want investigative games yeah uh, yeah and that's that's more like heavily woven in if you want to carry on the analogy yeah yeah i mean i i think this is much more a, a thing that's come about in comparatively modern gaming the fact that there are now these games like, for example, the, the Gumshoe family, where their entire raison d'etre is investigation, where the mechanics are focused on investigation, and where you know, that's what they do and they do well. It presupposes that investigation is an activity or you know, almost a genre in itself. That's it. I mean, and and it, you know, it comes down to, as I often say, it comes down to understanding your group and yourself in terms of what game you actually all want to play in terms of what what, it, what are the aspects of the game that you're looking to get out of it. And obviously some groups, you know, want to play a very heavy investigative game, um, you know, along those lines. Uh, other groups want investigation, but they also want some action or they want some, you know, other things going on. And they also want a greater sense of mystery, perhaps. I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, different groups go for different things, don't they? So Scott just said about how investigative games could be almost a genre in themselves. And yet, we've talked about horror being a genre. Call of Cthulhu seems to be often a mix of the two. Yeah. Uh, but often I, I feel like I'm doing investigation, investigation, investigation. Oh, now it's horror, now it's horror. Why are the two linked and how well do they go together? I think the simplest possible answer there is that <laughs> Call of Cthulhu did it first and it sort of set a template 
But because Call of Cthulhu was this blend of investigation and horror, I think it set a template that meant a lot of the horror games that came after that were, by default, investigative games. Even though you know, horror is a fairly broad church in terms of styles of play. I suppose very often in the scenarios, we're getting a situation whereby somebody's been killed. Um, you know, something's been destroyed. There's something which would involve you know, a criminal scene. And when we think of criminal scenes, we think of police investigations or private eye investigations for a missing person or something like that. So it leads us down anything from Sherlock Holmes to kind of Philip Marlowe, any of those kind of investigative routes, which aren't necessarily like Lovecraft would have written it, but that that's perhaps the mode that we fall into. Mm. Is that well, fair? I, I, I think part of that is because, I mean, this, this harks back to... One of our earlier discussions, and I can't remember which one, but where we were talking about the nature of a lot of horror being revelation. And I think that is tied in with investigation as well, because investigation is a series of building revelations up to one big one at the end, where things get resolved or where there are some big consequences for the secrets you've uncovered. And I think that is very much the template for a lot of horror as well, that horror is about perhaps these, these revelations as well, but... But, you know, what you're learning is perhaps less wanted than you'd get. Well, this is it. It becomes the nature of the revelation itself, whether the revelation... Because horror kind of tends to fall into two camps on this. It either becomes... The the revelation is external to you, or the revelation is internal. It's actually... Self, it's actually a journey of self-discovery rather than the, and often sometimes they're the same thing, um, but uh, and that's where it blends very well with horror because obviously it's normally not a nice thing or a good thing you're mm-hmm. you're discovering. It's there's some uh, intrinsic darkness or horror there, um, either externally or internally. Looking at a few examples of let's say horror films, how many of those sort of prime examples would we say are really strongly investigative? Quite a few, I'd say. Um, I, I know some of your favourites, for example, Matt. I mean, things like Angel Heart or Ninth Gate. Yeah, yeah, pretty much the two that I would list as my favourites. Yeah, they're definitely investigative. <laughs> oh hell yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I rewatched The Exorcist recently. I wouldn't say that's investigative. No, probably not. I mean, they, whereas The Exorcist Three. Yes. It's based entirely around an investigation. Well, right. I, I, actually, I, thinking about it with The Exorcist, if you go back to the novel it's based on, uh, the detective in it, what, what's his face, Kellerman, is it? Um, oh, yeah, it's right yeah, on those lines, who, yeah. Who, who was pretty much the template for Columbo. Um, and Just one more thing. He, he really is like that in the novel. I don't know why uh, William Peter Blatty didn't sue the makers of Columbo for lifting that character. <laughs> he drives much more of the investigative side of it there. But yeah, I, I, I agree that you know, the important horror elements in there are separated. Yeah, you've got, you've got actually two things in parallel running. You have an investigation going on. Meanwhile, you have an in-situ, in-situ horror to react to, which is obviously connected, but the two things are actually running in parallel. I mean, if I think about it in terms of gaming, most of the horror games that, that came out in the wake of Call of Cthulhu, and you know, probably dominated for some time afterwards, most of the big horror games I can think of are intrinsically investigative as well. So I've been thinking about things like uh, Chill, uh, Unknown Armies, has a lot of investigation in it, even if it isn't the focus of it. Mm. Cult as well. Cult, yeah. Um, yeah. I guess the one that maybe... I don't think jumped out as clearly as investigative is Vampire. Oh yeah. In that in that sense, it becomes much more. It is a horror game, it, but it's, it's dealing with a different approach. 
um, because uh, you know while investigation can be a part of you know the world of darkness it's not that's not its focus really well, is it you say that but i mean thinking about it a lot of the skills the characters have the abilities there in the world of darkness if i remember remembering correctly a lot of them function quite well as investigative skills they can do um particularly because you've got them split into kind of social well yeah social mental and physical skills um, your social and mental could very easily be can i um, do i know this thing or can i get someone to tell me about this thing so yeah. you, you can very much play it like that, or, or even can I interpret this thing? Can I understand it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get, again, I get, I guess it's a kind of the, the twists of the dial slightly. Mm-hmm. I tend to would term that as it's intrigue. An investigation tends to be a part of intrigue because mm-hmm. there's yeah. something to find out, mm-hmm. but it isn't necessarily the core. Actually, the core is the intrigue. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Very much in a game where, like Vampire, where it is mostly politically driven. It's interesting to me that I guess you know we've got Call of Cthulhu one shots which where this doesn't apply but it took i think quite a long time before we started seeing you know a lot of horror role-playing games that really approached the breadth of of horror stories and and horror films in terms of you know survival horror and slasher films and stuff like that and all the the the, the tapestry that makes up uh horror i mean certainly yes as i said there were call of cthulhu one shots which address these things but i i was trying to think why particularly in the case of Call of Cthulhu, why so much of what people associate with it is the investigation. And the, the answer that, that came to mind was that it's something that sustains a campaign better than anything else. Yes. I mean, horror films mm. tend to be discrete units, they're short, sharp shocks. You're building towards something quick and nasty and final, which doesn't work for a campaign. Whereas you know, a long, drawn-out investigation with lots of twists and turns which is the kind of thing that you probably didn't see as much in horror until the advent of TV shows like uh, The X-Files. You know, it, it is, it, it's, it's pretty much a, its own thing in terms of role-playing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've got that written down here exactly the same, Scott. I think, um, whereas with D&D, it's the kind of the, the exploration, it's the next dragon it's the next dragon over. Yeah. It's, it's the impulse to to keep going with that set of characters to grow their power base, as it almost is with Cthulhu. Because you're not actually it's not about growth of your power as a character. It, actually, the way you develop in Cthulhu is through knowledge. Yes. So therefore, it, it makes an excellent bedfellow with investigation because investigation is about the accumulation of knowledge. We've talked a bit about the link between uh, horror and investigation and sort of touched upon the fact that it's, it's sprinkled into other games. But in what other styles of role-playing games have you encountered investigation as, as an integral element or something that really brings them to life or something that really works well? The one that sprung to my mind, Scott, was a game we were in recently, which was Raphael Chandler's scenario for Lamentations of the Flame Princess, world of the lost well it's more than just a scenario it's a campaign setting. campaign indeed yeah. we went to the african town and interacted interacted with the the, the people there and the first thing we were d- told to do was to go and investigate some guy mm. and uh, we went around to the house and, and it was very much kind of classic investigation really yeah and thinking about it that lamentation scenario that matt ran for us sometime back as well with the uh, the the printers Oh yeah. yes, no, that that was that was very investigative as well. Yes, that's. I mean, you know, I remember playing in the day um, traveller scenarios, which were investigative. I remember one where you land on some planet in the shadow of a pyramid, I think, and then your ship doesn't work, none of your electronics work, and you've got to figure out, 
you know, investigate why you can't take off and, and find a solution. I struggle because this isn't the game system that's doing these things. This is the scenario yes. writing. And so what you just talked about, Flamentations, or I'm talking about Traveller, could apply to any role-playing game whatsoever if you wish to make it an investigative. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and obviously certain mechanics for certain games support that better than others, obviously. Some games don't have any mechanics for investigation. Yeah, investigation is more traditionally associated with detective stories and uh, and the like. You know, a, a very different genre. And it's something that we don't tend to see that much played straight in role-playing games. I don't think... I think it'd be very hard to name, you know, certainly in the... Um you know, in the big names of role play, yeah. um, you know, a game that is purely Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes. You know, yeah. there are games we can think of, I'm sure, oh, yeah. but... Um, yeah, I mean, there were two that sprung to mind, but they're both fairly small games. Yeah. Uh, one is, is Graham Walmsley's A Taste for Murder, uh, which does the classic English, um, you know, stately home murder mystery absolutely perfectly. Um, and the other is... Um, Dirty uh, dirty, no, I was thinking of Dirty Secrets, uh, which is a GM-less game, which is much more about hardball detective fiction. I mean, a Dirty World, Greg Storzy's game. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I'd say that there is an investigative side to that, but I tend to think of that as being much more noir, which is, isn't necessarily investigative. Um, I think a lot of the best noir is actually reactive rather than proactive, which mm-hmm. makes it almost the antithesis of, of uh, investigation. It's kind of the investigation in the noir is is almost the MacGuffin in itself, isn't it? Yeah. You, you start with an investigation, but very quickly, everyone's coming. It's like I said before, everyone's coming to the actual lead character. Yeah. The lead character isn't actually going out and doing stuff. It's, you know, it kind of mixes the two, but, but, um, but it's very much about who's kicking in his door now. <laughs> If in doubt, send in two guys with Tommy guns. <laughs> so I have an idea based on what you just sort of inspired, what you, you were saying a minute ago, Mike, about how we can sort of impose investigation on any game or, or genre. It's not integral to the, the game system. Thinking back again to, you know, before I played investigative games and I played D&D and designing a D&D game, they'd come in the entrance and they'd have to do that room, then that room, then that room, and, you know, might be the old secret door and passageway and a few choices, and then eventually they'd find the stairs down to level two. I knew they couldn't get to room X before they'd done previous rooms. And I think almost an investigation is, is a way of compartmentalizing parts of the game so that they have to be mm. done in order so as a gm i'm sitting down i know that they're gonna to have to go and talk to you know old man jones at the shop and i can plot that out before they go to the house up on the hill before they go to the research lab and they, you know, they might circumvent that but i've got a rough order of things in which my players might do them it's the illusion of the sandbox but in each part of that sandbox, the characters or locations have whatever clue you have seeded into that location. And players think they have free will to go wherever they like. Which well, they kind of do, they, right? Well, they, they do. Hmm. But they haven't heard about... They, they, the outcomes are all predetermined in that sense because, you know, you know hmm. what's going on in the, in these each locations. They could go Alt- straight to the research lab, right? They but they're not could, going to because they haven't heard about that They haven't yet. heard about that yet. So... Again, it's like they could go into, you know, they could go down the corridor to the end room where the doors to the basement are, mm. but they're not going to do that because they're going to go to the door on their left first. And that's going to, you know, and <sighs> I'm trying to say is that <sighs> the people kind of talk about linear games and sandbox games and non-linear games. And yeah, they are, there are, there is a difference, but ultimately at the end of the day, 
it is all so predetermined and they still have to go you're not you're not going to run a sandbox unlikely to run a sandbox where on the first five minutes of the game they turn up at the research station just because oh there's a research station we'll go there and suddenly that's where Cthulhu is and that's the end of the adventure because you've just finished okay we've done it you're not (laughs) going to do it are you Now that we've defined somewhat what an investigative game is, let's talk a little bit about how we approach them as players. Do investigative games demand certain types of characters and certain types of skills for them to be an investigative game? In very quick answer, no and yes. No, you don't have to have... That's not really an answer, is it, Matt? (laughs) Well, does it involve certain characters? (laughs) No. Does it involve certain skills? Yes. Does it? I, I, I think it doesn't even involve certain skills. This is something we'll probably come back to when we talk about the GMing side of things. But, you know, the, the investigation or the clues in it can be tailored to the characters. Um, so if you know the characters have got a limited set of skills, you know, say they're all scientific uh, characters who've got no interpersonal skills, not that I'm stereotyping, <laughs> um, then you'd, you'd make sure that all the clues were expressed in scientific forms. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I don't think lack of certain skills should necessarily be a barrier there. But I guess with Call of Cthulhu, what is the archetype of Call of Cthulhu character? An academic, an author, things like that. And looking at the Call of Cthulhu character sheet, there tend to be quite a lot of academic, intellectual skills on that sheet, which, rather than giving that person a sword or a club or a gun and telling them to go off and go into a crypt and fight ghouls, they're more likely to go and interview people, more like to go and talk to people, seek out arcane knowledge or ancient manuscripts. Visit the library, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I wouldn't disagree with that in any sense. But I think you can look at the game quite simplistically that way. And I think the beauty of the game is that actually it doesn't have to be academics. It can be what you might term normal, regular people who aren't academics, but have some knowledge. You know, and that's you know, and that's why the the you know, the the skill system works very well in that way because you can have layers of knowledge and, and different degrees of knowledge that still are valid. The games I really really like are games that are actually about really normal everyday people that aren't super brains and that kind of thing or who are foisted into difficult and unusual circumstances or, or, or faced with a, that sort of mystery. I'd certainly not disagree with that, Mike, but I think those things on the character sheet to a lot of people would lead them towards. Hmm. that kind of play that and the fact that you've got certain default professions in the rule book which are very much along those lines you know mm. like author like academic like scientist doctor yeah. and you know they do tend towards this this more intellectual side of things and you've got private eye and policeman and so on i think what's probably more important from my opinion than having the right profession or the right set of skills is having a character who has a reason to engage with the mystery. And it's, it's easiest, I think, if they've got a professional reason. Um, but, you know, particularly if you're running uh, pre-written scenarios, because a lot of them seem to say, you know, say, all right, you've been hired to do so, or someone has come to you and told you this. And so, you know, having a character who is a reporter or a private eye or someone who professionally digs into mysteries is much more motivated to engage with that than a haberdasher. Yes, because otherwise you, you, you're tending to term, to play to the, either the one-shot or the quite short campaign where it is it is very player-focused. And as you say, the, but the mystery is actually 
it actually spins out from the personal lives of those involved. So, it, you know, a, a close relation dies or, or something uncanny is happening to them that they need to investigate to find the cause of. Um, but they, because they are intrinsically quite wired to those individual player characters, once they've solved that mystery, the kind of game has ended for them in a way, unless you yeah. like. Unless they have another relative die. Well, unless your other so, uncle has died. So what? deep that they. No, they have to continue. I don't know, but well, uh, yeah. but well you get into murder. She wrote syndrome. Yes. where basically you are death on two legs. Every time you get to know someone, you know their number is going to be up soon. You touched on something that I kind of wanted to just come back to, and because mm. obviously this is called the appeal of investigator games, and we haven't actually discussed the appeal of it mm, as a yeah. player. Yeah, yeah. And and I think um, I, I I don't know. This is my personal take. Is that I think everyone likes a good mystery. I think there is that kind of nat- natural kind of desire to know know things mm. and so um yeah. you know the, the the investigative game is is fundamentally around some form of mystery um and so there's that desire to kind of seek the truth and that for me for me personally that's 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 one of the enjoyments i get out of playing investigative games yeah i would say one of the most mm. effective games of call of cthulhu i was ever in there were only two players uh, matt not was running it and it was the start of Realm of Shadows, the pagan publishing campaign. And without any spoilers here, because we didn't... It was the first session, so we didn't know what was going on. All we knew that was a doctor had contacted us and asked us to investigate what had happened to his missing wife and child. So it was purely that. It was purely a missing persons case. We created characters, we started our investigation, and you know there were, there were various threads to the investigation, but there was nothing supernatural explicit in the game at that point i remember i woke up in the middle of the night and i was having this dream about it and i was just totally wrapped up in in what can have happened here because it, it really was a good mystery um and it, yeah it was great it was really intriguing i mean it comes back to you know to charm fiction very briefly is that you know crime fiction which we've kind of said is partly investigative in the main is a tremendously uh, popular genre it comes back to i think Nine out of ten people like a mystery. And they tend to involve (laughs) everyday people because, you know, everyday people get affected by these crimes. They're not necessarily doing the investigation, but they're involved. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be the dissenting voice here. I, I, I like crime fiction. I like, you know, crime television and films. Um, investigative games... This is something I'll probably come back to when we talk about the GMing side of things. There's something I struggle with as a GM and a player. Um, Out of all the approaches to horror, it's probably my least favourite. There's an element in my mind, and this is probably fairly pejorative, of having to work for your fun. You've got to eat your vegetables before you get your dessert. And for me, sometimes the process of investigation, particularly if the clues aren't that obvious in a lot of cases... A lot of investigative games, I think, are quite badly written. And it really is, you're going along talking to a generic NPC 1, generic NPC 2, try, you know, trying to say the right things to get the clues out of them. And then, you know, that'll tell you how to get to NPC 3, you get another clue out of them, and then you wander along to the end and then you, you die. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I, th- I think I've played too many games where that's handled badly and where I find it unutterably tedious, to the extent where... I know if I'm going to be involved in a lengthy game or a campaign where it is, you know, a classic investigative model, a little bit of me just groans inside of that. Thought. I mean, is it almost you've partly been 
almost it's like you've been missold here because you've signed up for a horror game mm. and then the first three quarters of it or whatever are all investigative games they're yes. like those prime time tv shows where you're investigating things and well there might be something supernatural going on but you know we haven't found it yet and there's another session and another session if that's handled well that could be really good but often yeah. it's rather can be rather perfunctory um so you're you've signed up for horror and then it's investigation 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 and then at the end there's a spoonful of horror you know, I don't disagree to some degree with what Scott says. I think, you know, I, I think it, but it, it, for me, like many things in gaming, come down to the execution of the original content. Yeah. And, and I think because it was a new thing and it was, you know, and people obviously wanted to explore it, a lot of the, you know, considerable library of Call of Cthulhu scenarios, you know, go back quite a few years, over 30 years, um, a lot of them are based around that because that was quite a new thing, really, in role playing. And, and it was quite exciting and different. We're looking at it with eyes. They've lived thirty years of that, and I still, I, I, I kind of, you know, want something else. But equally, you can you can run an investigative horror where where you're not um, where the first half of the scenario isn't actually mundane investigation. Yeah. You can very quickly run an investigation where every kind of location or you know step of the lo- on the way there is the shade of horror there to mm. either a greater or lesser degree. Yeah. And, well, that's and, too, and, often nega- uh, too often ignored, I think. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, that's something you really want to see more of, actually. I, it, it occurred to me, you know, having said all that, I've, I've written a number of investigative scenarios, but you, you've just cl- clarified something for me there, which is I've always tried to stray away from the mundane investigative, investigation mm. side of things and structure it like you say, that, that there's always something kind of horrific or, or uncanny or disturbing at every stage of it. Well, isn't it when it's done badly, I would say... The fact that, you know, Scott, you're going to play this game. Okay, well, we're going to play six this game for six sessions. And, you know, I wouldn't say this outright, but in the in the final session, you know, there's going to be some really exciting, horrific <laughs> stuff. So we sit down and we start playing session one. Right, Scott, well, you're, this is your character. They find out that something really exciting happened yesterday. Yes. <clears throat> oh, God, yes. <laughs> really, hap- really exciting yeah. stuff. But you didn't see that. But you can spend the next five sessions investigating it. Yeah, and th- th- this is why so much of the stuff I write starts with that Im- exciting thing happening to the player characters and them having to deal with the consequences of it. Having that discovery by one remove works all right in fiction, but I think too many scenario writers uh, decide to emulate what they've read in fiction and forget that what works in fiction doesn't necessarily work in role-playing games and vice versa. Yes. So, yes, if you're going to have something big like that happen, have it happen to the players. Yeah. And, of course, if you don't like the investigative stuff and you're actually more in- inclined to the... Um, you know, I, I, how, I'm trying to think of a catch-all term. I, I can only think of action at the moment. <laughs> well, that's Pulp Cthulhu for you, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just saying, we have a whole book for you like, specifically designed for this. <laughs> yes. So sort of building on that then, uh, or at least what we were talking about, about having motivated characters. You you talked about the appeal of playing normal characters, people who aren't privatised and... um, People who get wrapped up in the the investigation and the mystery. So so why should we expect these normal people to get involved in an investigation? 
Other than the fact that their players have signed up to play an investigative game. And it'd be a bit boring if they didn't do anything. Yeah, mm. but yeah, I, I mean, we, we've seen, you know, in, in horror games, players who refuse to engage with the premise because it's not what their characters would do and it puts them in danger. And I think there's an equal side of that with investigative games, which is why would my character drop their day job, you know, if, stop talking to their family or friends, go halfway across the country to investigate something that they're not being paid to do and they have no personal stake in. But- this is where we've, I think you've mentioned before about the characters have to be tied into the story and they have to have a personal buy-in to make it realistic and to give them that drive. Even if it's only in the most broad terms, even if the, the drive, the motivation isn't directly personal, you can still play on the angle that, one, you are the only people that know this piece of information and therefore you are the only people that have an inkling to the consequences of X happening or being discovered, which has an extended implication back to you. Whilst it won't affect you personally today, tomorrow the end of the world's going to happen. So you are involved. I mean, I'm stretching it to the thinnest yeah. degree that you know some, you know, some older scenarios may work on. But if you do it in the right way and you emphasise it in the correct way in terms of the gameplay you can get that buy-in but obviously it's even deeper a buy-in if it is much more motivational for that character if they're pulled into it in a, in a personal sense okay so i mean we're talking about this from the player's point of view though so i mean, you know part of what you just said there is scenario design but i think there's a responsibility on the part of the players as well to create characters that will engage with this in a suitable yes. way I mean, if you decide not to create a character that is, you know, a journalist or a private investigator and who, you know, the GM hasn't given you a personal hook into this, how do you motivate your character to get involved with an investigation? Well, Matt and I had this in Master and the Last Attack. We'd been playing, we were playing, you know, the opening scenes in New York and then it became apparent that the investigation was leading our characters to take an expedition abroad. And there was, I can remember a moment in the game, Matt, and, and I sort of said to you, well, why on earth would we do this? And let's just take a moment out and just sort of think why our characters would want to do this. What would we find out that would motivate our characters to actually want to do this? And we kind of thought yeah. over what our characters had discovered and, and came up with a, uh, a rationale, you know, because they'd found out there was this threat to the potential threat to the world. We couldn't tell, well, we could tell the authorities, but they weren't going to act on it. They wouldn't believe it. And but I, we knew stuff. And I think um, that's a really important thing, the fact that you as players decided to do this. And we had the resources to do yeah. it. And that a sea voyage between chapters gave you more sand back as well. <laughs> there was that. And time to read all those tomes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, it's the fact that um, I've, I've played in too many bad games where the attitude of the players has has been to almost challenge the GM and it's sort of, yeah, I know I as a player have, have agreed to play this game, yeah. but it's now your job to make me play yeah. it. Because I've got to go to work in the bank. I had exactly that in the convention scenario with a, with a particular player. But the setup was that they were all, the player characters were all gangsters in the 20s. And one of the characters was an account, was, was actually an accountant, but a crooked accountant for the yeah. boss. And the boss has set them, you know, go and sort this out, which obviously leads them into some sort of hor- horrible thing. But the accountant basically said, well, I'm an accountant, I-, I-, I wouldn't do that. Despite the boss categorically saying, I want you to go with them because I want you to keep an eye, I trust you to keep an eye on these other goons. 
there. He had a reason to go. But despite that, he chose to say, oh, well, I'm an accountant, so I'm, I'm not going to go. Uh, I'm going to go back to my office and, and work on the accounts. <laughs> and this is what happened. And, and despite my, you know, I started to try and throw some bones and draw him back into the game. But he was clearly, no, I've decided I'm, I, this is my character, wouldn't do this. Yeah. So it got to about halfway through the game of me trying to pull this character in while the other characters, having, all the other players are having a great time going off and doing stuff. I gave up. I just went, well, yeah. clearly that's what you want to do. So you sit there, have a drink. Thanks very much. You know, I, can, I, can, I can only go so far. It's Every- taken me a long time to come to this point of view, but I as a GM have largely given up trying to engage characters or you know, trying to engage players who don't want to engage. I mean, if you've signed up to play a game, all right, yeah, I mean, if, if I'm running a shit game or a boring game, then fine, it's my fault if you don't engage. If you are coming up with reasons why your character won't get involved with what everyone else is doing, and they are for reasons of, you know, reality or... Yeah, you know, or because yeah, you know, that's why character- Scott says reality with such yeah. disdain. Oh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's not what my character would do. Then fuck you. I'm not going to try to force you into playing the game. If you can't come up with some reason to do so, you sit there and you play with your fucking dice and keep quiet. And well, right most, most engineering wouldn't get done because most people go, okay, do I go down that dungeon where I'm going to certainly risk my life mm. for an unsure reward or? I could go back to the farm where I know I'm going to get an income and although, I'm not going to die. Although, is this a good parallel? Because if in a D&D game, I'm an adventurer. If I go down the dungeon, I'm probably going to come back with a load of treasure and cool stuff and level up. As a Cthulhu <laughs> investigator, if I go to that spooky old house, I'm probably going to get driven insane and die. Yeah, but Cthulhu plays to your better instincts. It plays to your the heroicism of the mm. individual. And, that, and that's different to the greed and avarice of the dungeoneer. What you just said, Paul, you and Matt sitting down deciding that as, as players, that is what I want to see in a game. Would have been just as easy or easier for you to sort of say, well, no, my character wouldn't do that. Actually, I felt like the default thing was just to say, yeah, OK, and just get led along because it was clear we needed to go to a foreign country. we careful not to give spoilers here. To a foreign <laughs> country. It was kind of like, oh, OK, I don't know why my character would do this, but I guess, yeah, let's just go and buy yeah. the tickets and, and go over the seas for months. And, and while that's not why. entirely healthy play, I think it's less unhealthy than the other option because at least it leads to you as a player getting to do something interesting. It does. I'd be happy if, you know, in your example, mm. you two had got together and go, actually, we can't think of a valid reason why our characters would now go and do this. But what we could do is we think if we pass this information as characters to yeah. such and such, yeah. we think they would be, and yeah. we're going to, you know, we're, in fact, we're going to park these characters yeah. and roll up these new characters that they're passing from because they've got a better motivation. Because at least you're still buying into it and you're giving, yeah. you know, you're making yeah. a logic for yourselves that yeah. works. As long as there's an fine. internal logic, yeah. I think. And then I'd, pick, I'd be quite happy to pick those other characters up and say, okay, we're being paid by Mr. You know, Jones my previous character, to, to go and investigate this thing. It sounds pretty exciting. Let's yeah. go and do it. We've been paid lots of money. Great. Rather than having the keeper every now and then during the session sort of saying, right, cutting back to New York, what are you two doing? <laughs> oh, I guess, I, I guess we're sitting around in a cafe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ordering another latte. Thank you yeah. very much. Occasionally making every five minutes an accounting roll. Well, let's move on <laughs> and say, as players, what do we do in investigation? We go and investigate. As a player, do we keep copious notes and all the handouts you know or do we look to the gm to kind of remind us of this stuff you know what what do we actually do 
I think again it comes down to the player GM contract in your group because I think I know that certain GMs kind of do a lot of the legwork for the players. I mean, I don't, I don't subscribe to this myself. <laughs> they actually at the end of the session write up the session, share it with the players in some way, keep a kind of campaign diary, so the players can kind of refer to that. And it's kind of like you know they have a fairly easy life. The players don't have to write mm. it down. Whereas ob- the opposite I've seen in other groups is that the players do all that work. They you know yeah. they they either rotate round taking notes or one person sort of says I'm going to keep a campaign diary or they all do to varying degrees there's always obviously one player who doesn't because oh what, what, what were we doing last week <laughs> that's that Scott isn't it yeah. <laughs> I, the, the, I mean but both you and I have had the, the experience of playing in each other's games with Alina as one of the other exactly. players and Alina is an absolute godsend because she keeps copious notes any game she plays she writes booklets and booklets and booklets full of coherent legible notes that she can then you know as 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 another player if if you then sort of say all oh, right oh that guy we met two scenarios back who gave us that bit of information uh, you know what what was his name is he tied in with all this and everyone else is just sitting there looking blankly at each other even mm-hmm. You, know, you or I as the GM is probably looking yes. blankly at everyone else. Oh, I can't remember. And then Alina flicks through her notes. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was it was Mr. Watkins. Yes, yes, he's fantastic. But I, I have to find that in, throughout my role-playing life, there's, there's always been at least one person, even if it was me, there's always been one person in the group who's actually... You know, has taken on that kind of role. It's, it's you know, it's the role of mapper in D and D, isn't it? Yeah. Somebody yes. will do the map. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think the beauty of uh, you know, with games like Call of Cthulhu is that the mm-hmm. that kind of note taking can 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 be very basic, or it can be taken to kind of artistic levels and some all fantastic stuff. I mean, mm. um, but I, I suppose one question because I'm I'm I mean I keep some notes. I'm I'm exaggerating a bit, but I keep some notes during play. But I don't keep those kind of detailed notes. I mean. Matt, Matt, you seem to be quite good at keeping notes in a game. I mean, you know, I've seen you, you know, with your book basically filling up an entire book of notes on a game. I mean, do you ever find that the act of doing that actually diminishes the experience of play for you because you're spending, you know, putting more concentration into documenting what's going on than you are with actually engaging with it at the time? Exactly that, which is why I don't do it hardly any now. Yeah. It's, it used to be a point where I'd write down everything that happens. Hmm. Whereas now I find that because it takes me so long to write anything, I'm then ca- either playing catch-up or realise that all I'm doing is writing and not actively doing anything. I, th- I think there's a desirable kind of halfway house for me that I, I take notes, not comprehensively, but if I didn't take notes, then I would feel I wouldn't really feel like I was invested in, in the investigation. I wouldn't really feel like I was taking part in it. And if I'm just sort of sitting back and every time anything happens, I'm saying to the GM, oh, uh, there was that guy we met last week. What was his name? I don't know what it was. Uh, where where was it? Uh, what's the next thing? It's just like, well, am I even really participating? Because yeah. I haven't really got a handle on what's going on. And, and I might as well just I might as well just put my dice on the table and go down the pub and, and let somebody else roll the dice for me and say what my character's doing because I'm not actually participating. Well, I, I guess there are techniques that you as players can use to do this I know it's something I've seen GMs do from time to time and something that you know, I as a player have done occasionally which is um, you know, having a, a shared document, a bit of paper in the centre of the table and actually start constructing a relationship map or a, mm. a series of, of notes or particularly names uh, you know, as a reference everyone can use and that you know, I, I, I think is, is a very simple technique that you know, certainly gets around the, the specific instance you talked there I talked about there, which is you know something I do the whole time of just forgetting NPCs' names. 
the very fact that Call of Cthulhu scenarios tend to have handouts. So actually, that is a way that allows players not to have to write all the notes because obviously, a lot of the time, the the key clues are in the handouts a lot of the time, or the key names or locations. So you don't have to verbate write them down. All you're doing is writing a few sketch link notes, perhaps most of the time, because of the handouts. Hopefully, provide your your core core base of information. Um, you know, not every scenario, but obviously, but certain, you know, particularly larger campaign scenarios where, you know, you do get a kind of a, a plethora of handouts often. Again, if it's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But, you know, when you get a handout, you know you're on the right track. Whereas when you're just investigating, what I like is that I don't really, I'm enjoying this. It's good fun. We're finding stuff out, but I don't really know if we're on the right track here or not. I mean, do, do you ever find... The idea that you might be going down a dead end, or um, I mean, certainly, I mean, this is something I've experienced a few times as a GM, maybe not so often as a player. That that feeling of having followed what was either a red herring or a mistake on my part, you know, going down, you know, this this avenue and finding there's nothing really substantive at the end of that. Do you find that disappointing? If it turns out to be a damp squib and you know, it's just a bit of a letdown, then yeah. But why does it have to be? I mean, if, we, if we're if we almost stepping back there yeah. from investigation no, into I mean, exploration, and if, if you can, if you if the GM goes with it and actually makes, you know, you, you discover some interesting stuff and it might be improvised, it might be a red herring sort of side plot. Or, um, or give it a consequence because while yeah. you were doing, doing that and, and realising, oh, we got nothing from that, and then you turn and look around and realise what's been going on while you've been going off in the wrong direction. That's good, yeah. And you have a consequence mm-hmm. to it. Then, then it becomes like, oh, wow, why did we do that? And it, but it becomes a motivating factor. Yeah. I do, I'm do. i pretty certain I've used this anecdote before, but I do remember when you were running Walker in the Waste Ball that we had gone for weeks and weeks You were holed up in New York. I think. Oh, I think it may have even been before then where it was weeks oh, without okay. a handout mm. and all of a sudden just like, off the cuff oh you know about this and uh, holy shit a handout hey it's probably <laughs> partly because I'd forgotten to give them to you as well but, yeah. <laughs> but, but I actually also think you're walking in the waste because you, you ran that separately for a different group that I was part of sure and yeah I remember we there was one particular location I won't mention the name as a spoiler <laughs> um, which we but decided but it is remote yeah, well, it's very remote. And we decided, because it had been mentioned a few times in handouts and so on, that it must be significant. So we set out there and we you know, had a little expedition to this place. And I mean, bless you, you actually sort of managed to make it interesting and you know, introduce a bit of danger and so on, even though it had absolutely no relevance to what we were doing. Well, it, it did feature in the campaign as a bit of a difficult talking about it without saying what it is but yeah. it was the location that did feature in the campaign but the uh the the timing of the events there were like you know months and months after so you, oh, you were okay. you were you were arriving there premature so prematurely that 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 the baddies hadn't even arrived yet. Um, <laughs> oh, I just assumed that it was because nothing ever happened there and it was just something someone had mentioned in passing. Yeah, no, it, it was part of the campaign, ah. but you know, mm. so it's kind of a tricky one. But hopefully I don't know. Was it was it enjoyable playing that? It, uh, yeah, it felt like almost a little holiday from the main campaign. Yeah, because we didn't engage with any of the villains. We didn't engage with the main threat. We didn't really uncover anything new for the investigation. Um, but we got to go hunting and nearly died in the process. So that was cool. Yeah, the nature of the game, isn't it? You, it's 
as a yeah, we're going into keeper a bit here, but uh, but as the as as the the games master, the keeper, your investigators have gone off the plot somewhere that you can't really bring that plot to them until they get back on track properly. But while they're there. Well, don't waste the opportunity. You can have yeah. some fun. Have some fun, you know. Yeah. Horror, horror exists in all shapes and forms in that sense. So, yeah, I, I guess in a situation like that where the dead end is handled entertainingly, then that's fine. I mean, if it turns out to be, you know, just 15 minutes, half an hour of play, talking to a couple of NPCs, and it's just sort of at the end of it, what do we learn from that? Nothing that we didn't know before. Then, yeah, I'd, I feel a bit pissed off. So in a rich and complex campaign like Masks, but do you ever find yourself disengaging if there is too much in the way of handouts and too much information to process too many NPCs? God, no. For me, that's a major plus point. The more information, the more NPCs, the more choices, the more complexity, the better. Because that's, that's where I revel, looking for, looking for connections and looking for these, all the different pieces of the jigsaw puzzle to put in place. Maybe if I miss a bit of it, I'm away for a session and I come back and they've got a load of stuff... And I kind of think, oh, I'll, you know, they'll resolve this bit. I don't need to get catch up with it, and I don't really get a handle on it, you know. And then you kind of get deeper and deeper, and you suddenly realise, oh, damn it, I don't, I don't really know what's going on here. Yeah. So that that's the only time I would say it's a problem is, you know, personally, if if I don't actually get my head around the, what's going on. How about you, Mike? I think, like in anything, it's a balance. I think you know, mm. you want enough stuff. Um, but you want to ensure there's enough room for the. Um, you, you, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think the ideal is to present that kind of information in digestible chunks, little and often. As a bit as an advice for life, you can't go wrong. I, I'm sort of the polar opposite of Matt in this respect, in that I find if there is too much information to process, if I, you know, if if I'm looking back over my notes and I can't make sense of who's who, if I've got, you know, uh, the equivalent of uh, the King James Bible in word count and handouts to go through, I just find myself thinking this feels too much like hard work. This isn't what I signed up to do. You know, I I, I wanted to role play, not. You know, sit there and and you know decode all this stuff and yeah, I I I I'm in it much more for the 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 interactions between characters, and if I'm sort of sitting there quietly by myself trying to shut out everything else that's going on at the table, making sense of all this stuff, it feels like a very lonely approach to what should for me be a group activity. No, my, 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 the bit I enjoy most often, I think, is that bit where. We have that new piece of information, which may be a single line. It might be an, an interview with an NPC that sparks the conversation between the players, between ourselves to say, well, what does this mean? Well, that must mean this. No, no, no. I think it must mean this. And we start to kind of rationalise and try and, and, then, and, and it automatically drives us further into this scenario and drives us like, well, do we go here or should we go back to there? Or, you know, and it suddenly becomes very exciting because suddenly yeah. you're in the middle and you're posed with a situation and a choice. And for me, you know, great role playing is, is, is actually putting choices and into, into the players to debate and to, and to kind of, you know, be enthused by. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with every word of that. My concern is sometimes by presenting too much information to the players, it makes it difficult to have those moments because oh, you're smothering you, them. You obfuscate the, the. That's why I tried to yeah. make the point that you find a piece of information yes. rather than a, a book of information. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it can be overdone sometimes. But again, it, de- it depends again. Know your group. You, Scott, yes. you don't like investigative games really anyway. Matt, you love them. So, you know, if you're both in the same group together, the GM's got a little bit of work to do to try and kind of, you know, give Matt what he needs whilst, you know, it's almost, it's almost saying, you know, well, let's think about the characters we're going to build here, guys. Because Scott, you're, you're obviously playing the kind of the, the world-weary PI who's got no time for looking at books and libraries, whereas Matt is the librarian. And that's why you work well together, because, well, I, you know... Together we fight crime. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know. I, I think when you ran the playtest um, of The Curse of Seven, <laughs> they, they, I, this, this ended up working very well. Because that that was when I discovered that the best investigative ability for me to take as a player is intimidate. It was, absolutely, right? and, and so my approach to investigation in that was basically uh, to treat every NPC I met as a potential clue dispenser, um, or treat them as a clue pinata, <laughs> and go up and beat them with a stick until the clues fell out. So in fact, fighting <laughs> brawl was actually your investigation. I think I spent any time trying to interpret the clues or get them subtly or you know follow trails or anything like that it's just sort of, oh here's an NPC we haven't met before Betty knows something smack yeah and, and, and the other the other players were the ones interpreting the clues or yeah. or finding the more esoteric and uh, you know more finessable clues uh, yeah and, and it, it worked very well because you, you were playing very different styles of characters and and complemented one another yes. for the end result which is yeah. you know, the ideal isn't it I think it'll be perfect for me and Scott in the same game. Then it's just I, I do all the brains, and then I just when it comes to that the obligatory combat scene, it's Scott smash. <laughs> it works. Building on that slightly, do we think that we are when when you get clues presented uh, to you? Do you think it's is always your job as a player to make sense of that clue, or is it your character's job to make sense of it? Um, I, you know, I this is a bit of a false dichotomy because you're I on about that. when there's an actual puzzle to well, not figure. necessarily a puzzle, but um, I, l- l- yeah, I'll see whether I can put this down. I, there were some investigative games I played, you know, back in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, run by an old friend of mine who, uh, yeah, I don't think there's any chance he listens to the show, so I'll just say it. He was a shit GM, um, and and now there are going to be comments <laughs> flowing in the show after the show notes, <laughs> and. Um, he did not have any concept of the difference between player knowledge and character knowledge. So, you know, if, if your character, you know, for example, was playing, you know, it was a research chemist or something like that, and you got a clue and, you know, the, the, he, he told you, right, you've been able to analyse the, the, you know, the chemicals uh, that were used to poison so-and-so and you realise it's this, this and this, then I'd say, all oh, right, OK, well, can I roll to see what that means? And so, no, no, you tell me what it means. Got to the stage where, you know, I, I, I was thinking, right, so does this mean when we have a combat scene I should just punch you in the face? Yeah, I, I have, <laughs> I've come across that, you know, where, where some GMs sort of said, oh, no, 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 if you want to, you know, you can't speak out of character. Whatever you say has got to be, is yeah. what your character's saying. So exactly the same, you know, well, what do I do then? Yeah. You know. I have seen the flip side of that where some players will have characters specifically so they can come up to a problem that the GM's designed and say, I solve it. Like, um, There's actually a point that Neil at the club raised, and I thought, when I heard about it, my God, that is the most boring way to play a character that I've ever heard of. He was using the example of if you're playing in an Amber game, that you create a character that has solving riddles skill above baseline shadow person. 
and it's, you're confronted by a riddle, and you just say, "I solve it because mm. I've got a skill that's better than uh, better than human is possibly capable of." I thought, well, that is tedium taken to the utmost extreme. There are some times where, you know, if a puzzle doesn't require intellect, if it's just sort of brute force or persistence, I, for God's sake, just call for a roll. Yes, yes. If it's not a skill for it, then that's what the intelligence statistic for yeah. character for, or, or even no. You yeah. know, that, that, they are your get-out-of-jail cards for this. Whereas there's me, you'll quite happily tear apart puzzles like that at the table. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's where you've got to proportion, you know, portion it out by saying, well, okay, Matt's gone to the library to work on this. Meanwhile, yeah. you lot are mm-hmm. off doing this. What are you doing? And, you know, and know your players. Mm-hmm. Well, to wrap up our discussion of how to approach investigative games as a player, are there any particular tips or ideas that um, you as players have, have, have come across over the years that you think it would be interesting to share with our listeners? One, I think, is actually the one that you've already mentioned, is that I... I found it quite eye-opening approaching scenario, investigative scenarios from a different angle or the way I kind of see it almost try to be subversive in that there are certain accepted tropes that the GM is going to expect you to do. So try and find something that's so completely off the wall that it makes them improvise. Like every NPC is, an, is a piñata that should be punched. I yes. love that. <laughs> that is something I'm definitely going to do at some point in the game. But yeah, trying to find innovative and unexpected ways to try and solve a problem rather than just like the vanilla one that everyone expects you to do. Yeah, that's good, I think. And as we said, try and get invested and find a reason that you, the player, buys into um, for your character to be be getting engaged with the the plot. Whether that be, I just think my character wants the money and they're going to get lots of money and reward for doing this thing. Well, fine. Or that it's somebody they care about. You know, maybe it wasn't, but maybe I decide, oh, actually, this person who's missing, let's say that it's a relative of mine or, you know, that I met them, befriended them. You know, just just try and create something that allows you to to get engaged with it. You know, quite often we as players rely on the GM to give us those hooks. And I think, you know, if you're creating a character for an ongoing campaign or even for a one-shot, by all means, do sit there and say, you know, say to the GM, would it be okay if that NPC you just mentioned is my brother or something like that? Or, you know, is there any way I could have some personal investment in this outcome? Uh, And as soon as you got that personal hook in there, then a lot of those misgivings we talked about before just evaporate. I mean, you've said it all really already, but I mean, to sum that up, I just say, do your best to work with the other players and, you know, take the time to ponder the clues and discuss them and to, mm. you know, you know, enjoy, enjoy the clues in that sense to, you know, and, and that, but equally work with the keeper, as Scott has just said, in, in terms of, you know, if you're feeling you're not that involved, then get yourself involved. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's your job as a player to enjoy yourself. So that if you're not enjoying yourself then make it so you enjoy yourself and get involved in the game and talk to the keeper about it and talk to the other players because they will have ideas and throw them a bone and they'll throw you the bone back and you can build it together. The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from blasphemoustomes.com. It is that time in the episode once again when we thank those generous souls who have given us money via Patreon. The money you give us keeps the podcast going. It pays for our maintenance costs, our hosting costs, uh, the new equipment that we buy periodically. Uh, basically, yeah, everything that we need to do a podcast. So thank you to each and every one of you. 
And we have a few new people to thank again this week. Yeah, a big thanks to Noah Lloyd. Yes, thank you very much, Noah. Indeed, thanks, Noah. And I think we're getting towards the uh, end of the backlog of our $5 backers. Oh, no. We've got, we got one more in the bag after today, though. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> the reason there is a backlog, if this is the first episode you've listened to, is that we craft a special kind of thanks to those brave, brave people who back us at the $5 level. You say brave, I say foolhardy. <laughs> Yes, we thank them through the medium of what could charitably be called song. No, no, Paul's the only person that even thinks he's singing. <laughs> uh, but yes, we, we make noises with our mouths and Paul does studio magic to them. And at the end, we have... A sound check? Yeah, yes. I, I think at least you know, a D3, D10. Oh, yes. And the first one of today's glorious tunes goes out to Colin Kirkham. Yeah, thank you very much, Colin. Oh boy, Colin. Why do you do this to yourself? Why? <laughs> thank you, 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 thank you. And the next one goes out to Jack Evans. Poor, poor man. <laughs> yes, thank you very much, Jack. Thanks, Jack. Thank you, Jack Evans. And last episode, we explored the delights of Event Horizon, and we've had a bit of feedback on that on social media, I think. Yes, I did have this sinking feeling after I posted the episode online. Before anyone had actually had a chance to listen to it, there were a number of posts saying, Oh, good, you're doing Event Horizon. It's my favourite film. And <laughs> I, yeah, I thought, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. And so, yeah, I, I feel like I should apologise to everyone out there who, who went into this expecting us to say nice things about their favourite film, because we weren't really that complimentary, were we? Well, Hamza Kazmai on Twitter uh, comments, perhaps a bit harsh on Event Horizon. And, yeah, I guess we did accentuate the negative over the positive. I, we did... I, I think we were fairly balanced um, on... The, We're all about the, accentuating the negative, though, Scott. Yes, in every aspect of our lives. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I speak for yourself, monkey boy. I know it's what I do. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I'd, I'd like to think we were fair, if, if, yeah, perhaps a bit harsh. Yeah, maybe so, yeah. I think we. I think the thing was, uh, you and I particularly, Scott, was kind of surprised because we, we had such a good idea of it in our minds that when we came to watch it, we were a bit taken aback. Yeah, like twenty years later to sort of see it and think, oh, actually, it's not as good as I recall. But yeah, and, and I good. guess still fun. Well, I guess if we'd listened to someone else doing that episode and we hadn't watched it for twenty years, we'd yeah. be sitting there listening. But but that's one of my favourite films. Why are you saying all these horrible things about it? Uh, we also had uh, Tor Nielsen comment. 
It's one of those movies that's entertaining without being terribly good, in my honest opinion. I watch loads of those movies. <laughs> Just what it should have in brackets after there, so you don't have to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, there is a bracket, though. Um, I can never interact with Anthony Lee Dudley. Dudley. Again, without hearing that guttural chanting. What guttural chanting? I don't know what he's on about. No, no. I don't know. <laughs> Listen to previous episode. <laughs> Ah, now, something that I'm very keen on getting are iTunes reviews, because the more iTunes reviews we get, the better we look on iTunes, and lots of people might find us through iTunes. So we have a new review from yeah, somebody whose name... Are you <laughs> in the... I, yeah, I, I think whoever posted this review, judging by the username, is probably a cat, because that is what you get when a cat walks across a keyboard. Well, I hope we're not being like insensitive here, but I, um, no, I, I, I think I think that is just a random collection of characters. But they are highly complimentary, and they say truly insightful show, full of great discussions, Cthuloid updates, and entertaining content. One of the best RPG podcasts out there. Woohoo! No, yeah, well, thank you. Thank you very much. We're doing something right. Yay! <laughs> and if we can inspire any of you other listeners out there to write us a review, then uh, we'd very much welcome it. I hear someone's been doing something very bad to an effigy of Lovecraft as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we had a post on Google Plus from Forrest Aguirre, um, which was following up on our discussion in episode 100 about the appeal of Lovecraft and some of the controversy that went around the World Fantasy Award. And Forrest posted, Philosophical matters aside, I'm torn about the designs of these statues. I won a World Fantasy Award a few years back and love my Lovecraft statue, which I've adorned with a beanie cap and false Pinocchio nose. Then again, I own an original sculpture by the sculptor of the new award. I like them both, but was really hoping to bookend someday with another disembodied head of Lovecraft. Oh well. Poor Howard. But let's just take note there, Forrest Aguirre... Wrath of God, has got a World Fantasy Award. Yeah. Sorry, I can't, I can't say the name Forrest Aguirre without thinking of the Werner Herzog film Wrath of God. But yeah, he's got, he's got a World Fantasy Award. That's pretty cool, yeah. isn't it? it? It is pretty damn cool. Yeah. Our listenership yeah. is classy. Yeah. It is. I wonder what these people are doing listening to our, <laughs> us rambling on. But, um, but there you go. Thank you very much, Forrest Aguirre, for posting. If, if you look up the post, I think it's on Google+, isn't it? Yeah, not not on this exact thread, but he then posted, I think, subsequently in the Good Friends of Jackson Lies Google Plus group. And, and uh, there's a photograph and, yeah. of his uh, World Fantasy Award with the with the nose and, and everything on there. Yep, yeah. and, and how he has never looked more dapper. Yeah. And sum up, have we discovered the appeal of investigative games? Honestly... I mean, I think it's slightly clearer to me now, but, uh, you know, they, they will never entirely be my favourite style of game. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I, again, I, I think what would be really interesting is, you know, for you personally, in terms of an investigative game, if there's one thing that you could say, you know, although you, you know, they're not your sort of game, Scott, what's the one thing about them that actually, the bit that if you do are going to enjoy it, that's the bit you enjoy? Perhaps if everyone says what the bit yeah. they enjoy about yeah, yeah, is yeah, that, probably. you know? Okay. Yeah. Do you want to start, Matt? Is you're, you're probably going to be the quickest to be able to answer. Yeah, uh, I'd say it's putting those pieces of puzzle together and going, "Oh, so that's what it means." That's it's that kind of revelation moment that really buys it for me. I think it's having a mystery, a really good mystery, to kind of get latched into, and that, as I said earlier in the episode, that can be something quite mundane, like a missing person. 
Um, or it can be as in masks, you know, we ended up in Egypt on the strength of one clue that there might be this guy who used to have a shop there and we didn't know what else to do, but we went there because we'd heard of this one thing. And there was a, there was a mystery and a, there's, there's the balance of what you know and what you don't know. And um, if it's done well, you know, that, that kind of captures my imagination. And there's lots of bits that I'm guessing at. And like in a good film, I'm kind of, you know, trying to fill in the blanks, like in a David Lynch film or something like that, and make my own narrative of what's going on. And, you know, that, that kind of inspires me. Yeah, I, I, I'm very similar to you, Paul. As you know, I, I, it's the, the the sense of mystery. So, I, I, you know, I want to know. I want to know what's happened. I want to know why. I want to know what really is behind all this. You know, and and if my if my character is that much, you know, is is kind of personally invested in it in some way, um, it's even greater. Um, so yeah, that that kind of who done it almost approach that, that you know that appeals to me. I want to know what the keeper knows. I want to know what the real secret is. Come on, tell me. You know, and that's what drives me through the mystery, I guess. I suppose for me, it's because the actual process of investigation does, in most games, tend to involve interacting with a lot of different NPCs. And it's that role-playing aspect of it. It's the interpersonal side of things. It's finding ways of, creative ways of getting that information out. Perhaps, you know, almost like Matt was saying earlier, with subverting things, or at least finding unexpected ways to get that information out, misdirection, trickery, outright threats, or or just a bit of cleverness. It's, it's that problem-solving aspect of the interpersonal side of it that appeals to me more than the the actual investigation itself so i think one thing i've discovered in this episode if there's a game with a library in it matt will sit down read every book <laughs> his character will read every single book in the reference library and collate all the information and probably be driven mad by the, the contents scott on the other hand will beat the shit out of the library and then, and then burn the fucker down absolutely <laughs> to the ground <laughs> before anybody can read any of those books <laughs> well, me and Paul are outside going, well, let's go in the library now and see what's going on. Yeah. Go, oh, 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 why no. is Scott's oh, character I'm... running down the street? Yeah. Why, why is, is, is Matt's character on, on fire? fire. <laughs> <laughs> Always with the aspect on fire. Every fucking time. Every time. <laughs> me and Michael are in the car just driving off. Let's go to another town. <laughs> <laughs> Our initial goal was to try to cover this topic in a single episode, but obviously it's going to be too big to, to talk about just for an hour or so. You can't handle the truth in just one hour. Unfortunately, we've got Mike manacled to the fireplace here, so you know, yeah. he's good for a while. Yeah, you, you can feed him until next week, can't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah, not after midnight. <laughs> <laughs> then join us next time when next episode we will uh, be discussing how to handle investigative games as a writer or as a GM. So until next week, folks, from me, it's a subtly overheard goodbye. It's a curious cheerio from me. It's a hard-boiled farewell from me. And it's a kick in the door. It's the Imperial Inquisition from me. Goodbye. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.